When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, we continue our special eight-episode miniseries on Netflix's Hip Hop Evolution documentary. Nate is joined by Alexi Old and Eugene S. Robinson, his cohorts from the YouTube show If the Shoes Fit. This week, they discuss the second episode of Hip Hop Evolution, From the Underground to the Mainstream, which covers the Sugar Hill Gang and Rapper's Delight, the bootleg tapes that captured the early rap battles, and Africa Bambata's smash, Planet Rock. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and this week I'm joined by... <laughs> Alexi Excuse Old, author, yeah. Seven Secret Source Inspiration, Snappy God for Creator Procrastinators. And, and, Eugene, and Eugene S. Robinson, award-winning journalist of some note uh, and singer for Oxbow. That's right. And uh, we're all sort of hip-hop fans or have enjoyed hip-hop for many years. Eugene has I'm, a cap. I'm a, I'm a fan. That's right. I, I, I'm a f- I was a Golden Age fan. Then I dropped out, and now I'm back. Oh, I but, drop out and come back, or drop out and come back, or drop out and come back. So yeah, yeah. And so we're reviewing, continuing our review of Netflix's Hip Hop Evolution or HBO Canada, as as Alexi notified us last week, <laughs> <laughs> the first episode. But now we're talking about season one, episode two. The underground to the mainstream, which focuses on first, they talk about the various groups struggling to fill the void created when Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five took out on took off on tour, and then they get into uh, the Sugar Hill Gang and Rappers Delight, the first rap record. Then they talk about the novelty, the explosion of novelty rap songs that, that follow in the bandwagon of that, and then how hip hop was saved by taking Uptown, Downtown, and then two great records, Planet Rock by Africa Bambata and The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious but Five. How could you, how could you miss the, 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 the pivotal, 
uh, the blackout was a major feature. <laughs> because before you stepped on my segue, I was about to roll right into that. They don't with, call and... them the showstopper for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and so the episode starts with the look back at the 1977 blackout and its him- impact on hip hop, which was Eugene. Uh, well, I have to tell you, it uh, people broke into all of their favorite local music stores and stole uh, uh, or liberated, as some may have said, uh, a crap load of equipment that they wouldn't have ordinarily been able to afford. And suddenly it changed the face of music, felony, felony of music. So instead of the people uh, at the big desk stealing, it was the people behind the mics and now mixing desks who were stealing. So. Uh-huh. And suddenly there was, as Grandmaster Kaz said, there was a wealth of equipment for DJs and MCs that year. And a whole. Well, what, what, I, I thought they should have leaned more heavily on that because I, I, I lived through two blackouts in New York. And the first one, I believe, was in the 60s. And that, and that was. Yeah, and that was a mellower deal. I mean, I don't blackout. recall it. Yeah, I don't recall it. Be, the time was different, right? Um, but things were so horrible come 77 that, you know, with everybody getting back from Vietnam messed up, the attendant drug problems that came with them being messed up, you know, New York City being told to drop dead by Gerald Ford and having financial mismanaged by uh, a, a guy who I loved at the time because he was photogenic as fuck, uh, John Lindsay. Um, but uh, strangely enough, a Republican, but he was not a great uh, mayor. And uh, the city had just, you know, precipitated by white flight and insurance scams and the burning of the buildings and unemployment was 30 percent. And, you know, something like that lit the fuse. And uh, I think that night I was 15 and I was watching Beretta Beretta. And I was like, I have TV and I'm messing with the TV. And then suddenly I'm aware of it being quiet everywhere. And then about 30 minutes later, it started, <laughs> you know, and it was not even, uh, you know, it was not even the, the, the thing that made it more like Bastille Day than anything else is that to my knowledge, people weren't really attacking each other, which is what I would have expected. Um, and, for, you know, I, I went up to Bedford Avenue and Flatbush Avenue and wandered around uh, before my mother screamed at me to get back in the house. Um <laughs> but hey, you know it uh it people clearly wanted to do something it wasn't even like the LA riots it was like it, it was targeted it, w- it was it was done much like that guy suggested people were stealing shit that allowed them to get ahead like stuff i've always wanted and believe i need is stuff i'm not going to get and of course you know the comp- the the was uh, by insurance they weren't i guess but and so a thousand flowers bloom and a dozens of crews emerge. But one thing that, that about the timeline on this episode that confused me a little bit was they're talking about Grandmaster Flash the Furious Five leaving town on tour. But that didn't happen until after they put out records, did it? I don't know about that. I don't, See, I, I, don't, I, don't I don't think it did because and then and they and they you talked about, about them touring in the first episode they talked about them touring. They talked about them touring too, and so I'm real curious. I need to I need to open up my old books, hip hop books, and look back and see where, if they were touring before they put out records. And honestly, it's the sort well, of you thing also I have should... to you also have to remember that the way radio was in those days, there were I can name a handful of artists who I 
I don't know if they ever put out records, but I heard on the radio quite a bit. Steinsky being the one that comes comes most readily to mind. Well, I've heard several times on the radio, and were Steinsky to be playing, I would have gone. But I don't I don't know that I ever saw a record to, that was available for purchase. You know, so that might be possible. But the the other timeline thing that they do is they talk about this this slew of crews that emerged in the Bronx and Harlem. The, you know, the Funky Four, Busy B, Starsky, DXT, Spoonie G, The Treacherous Three, The mm-hmm. Fearless Four, The Crash Crew, Mastodon, and The Deaf Committee, which I love. But they they build up to a big battle between the Fantastic Four and Grandmaster, Cash, Grandmaster Kaz and the Cold Crush Brothers that happens in 1981. Fantastic Five. The, sorry, my bad. Fantastic Five. And then they go back to 1979 for the Sugar Hill gang yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, you're right you're right they, so they violated the order yeah yeah they're playing with the timeline but the point they wanted to get across was that there's this explosion of crews in the city both in the bronx and in harlem and they don't really talk about who's the first harlem crew or or you know when the emergence of the harlem scene happens but it seems like they're pretty much cross-pollinated and overlapping is that correct in your understanding eugene yeah, but I also I think that this ties into the whole blackout thing because on 125th Street, that was kind of like a, a major sales thoroughfare. It's the same street, you know, with the Apollo. And right now you've got, you know, you've got like Hugo Boss has got an outlet there. I mean, now it looks like Times Square. It's can be completely rehabilitated. It's totally fancy by my lights. Remember what it had been. But I, you know, I think you would mark the ascendancy of Harlem Cruise. It's not like they didn't know what was going on. But post the blackout, they could actually, you know, I mean, how many people are going to dumpster dive like apparently Grandmaster Flash did, taking odds and sods and put them together to try to make them sound like something, you know? But it was easy once you had the stuff to to to, to mess around with. So. And the South Bronx didn't have the retail to loot in the first place. Correct. Correct. So, so yeah, that was so, to close. So, yeah. to close the point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, but then they then they segue into this really interesting story of uh, a rap battle at the Harlem World. They don't mention the date. It was in 1981, July 1981. So it's the backtracking. But between the Fantastic Five and Grandmaster Kaz and the Cold Crush um, brothers, and it, I, it's a fascinating story. I mean, it's a classic rap battle, yeah. just like you see in Eight Mile or whatever, um, yeah. except two crews, professional crews who are doing a set each. And the audience is is cheering to vote for it, and the winner take all thousand dollar prize. Well, they gave and, him a choice. That was a great part where they gave him a choice. I yeah. give seven hundred to first, and three hundred to the second, or a thousand dollars to whoever takes first place. And then they decided to roll the dice. Fuck it, you know, winner takes all. What I think was weird about that, uh, interesting about that too, and I'm curious your take is Eugene, like as a performer, is um. When they were talking about how the concert went down, like both crews were trying to stuff the crowd with their fans. And they yep. kept on focusing on the fact that the Fantastic Five had the pretty boys and they had, you know, they were more coordinated and just the value, the time, the, the Fantastic Five was talking about the time they put in developing their stage performance, right? And so mm-hmm. when the Fantastic Five wins um, and 
Grandmaster Kaz like, yeah, but you know what? Like when the tapes came out, the streets knew who won. But the problem I found with it was like, yeah, if someone made an audio recording of a performance, I guess in theory you can say, well, if you listen to the audio and the lyrical delivery, you know, Grandmaster Kaz and the, the Cold Crush crew won it. But at the end of the day, it was a physical performance. So I thought that was kind of nonsense. I mean, I understand where he's coming from. And I also understand revisionist history, but there's a total difference between watching something live and seeing what's on stage yep. and the interaction with the crowd as opposed to a pure audio recording. So I just – I thought that the producers yep. – and I, I'm going to bookmark this for later. Um, it, it just – it's what I find fascinating throughout – two episodes is there clearly is a pecking order and there clearly are sides that the producers have fallen to and i don't know if it's a situation where you know who uh who they gave final cut rights to i don't know who was hooking them with interviews i don't know if it's basic sympathies but it just i i I just i just thought it was it seemed like a bunch of stands falling it's like whoever said yeah this is what happened okay this is what happened and we'll write it down well here's here's my take if you want to go ahead but i have as well okay okay well the deal the deal is i think that kaz was talking about like that which is elemental you know and somebody there's now a challenge i don't know uh, uh, uh name two bands we pick between them and uh i got nate newton from uh converge and an easy this is an easy for me beefheart zappa right <laughs> And he sidestepped it completely by picking a third artist that was affiliate. And I was like, what was a clever way to get out of it? You know, Zach was much more popular than Beefheart, but nobody in my mind who knows anything is serious about music would ever pick Zap over Beefheart, you know? It's like same with the Cold Crush. You know, they were kind of stinky about having a at night, but in, in, the, in the course of time, over the course of time, Cold Crush has been much more influential, much more from, from every vantage point and i continued to hear cold crush straight through the mid the mid to late 80s man and the, and, and fantastic five uh, well, i'm not saying they were garbage and that was like that was etched in stone like how their career trajectories were going to be but in terms of mm. that night by saying that oh the audio tape showed that night we should have well, won is oh like, yeah, no, yeah. Man. But, people people but why you're missing trying to relitigate stuff like that but yeah. the reality of it was the better artists i think were you know cold clearly you know and, and more, more, dri- more drive more you know from every they hit on every single every single outside of that night and the performance but just taking the l on that one and go yeah they got us at night so and what about missing well the thing is there was a medium shift from the performance to cassette tape and on the cassette tape grandmaster cast and the cold crush brothers were really head and shoulders over fantastic five allegedly according to people who are there like dmc that they wrote that you know, collectors of these hip-hop shows that uh, that suddenly people re- realize wow kaz is doing some next level shit and these guys bringing it in a way the fantasy five is just not so yeah i mean i don't think that i don't think kaz's point was we should have won the contest or the thousand bucks i think his point was when people heard the tape they realized we had staying power and that we were the ones that were bringing it on tape. And you also, also, you need to tie this into Japan too, right? You know where I'm going with this. No, no, I do not. <laughs> uh, because I remember riding the subways in relative peace and quiet. And then in 79, 
I remember the subway cars oh, rocking by guys with big big boomboxes, right? Yes, yeah, Sony. You know. Yes, yes, yep. yes. Yep. So the yeah. yeah, the giant jam boxes were all over the place, uh, bust out those cassettes. But the other thing, the reason I think for their narrative that they're really pushing Grandmaster Kaz is because Big Bank Hank of the Sugar Hill Gang called swiped his, his his shit. But they messed that and story so up too. But go on ahead. What did they what, what did they say well, in the yeah, show versus but, how it really happened? So, but let's talk a little bit about Grandmaster Cats because because the show is, ah, well because the show goes into them a little bit and they talk and this is the thing as a white guy I wanted to get in there that Kaz is very outspoken that his influences were what they call white boy music Barry Manilow <laughs> oh I now it. I get it <laughs> I yeah, love Cole Crush clearly won that one that's right Cole Crush yeah. uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> so Barry the, the white artist he cites as his top influences Barry, Barry Manilow Terry Jacks, Simon and Garfunkel then he gets to the yep. Beatles Stones and then and then he runs one of his his songs through and he's like that's i write the songs by barry Manilow," which you know <laughs> yeah. was, was totally mind-blowing for me but then we segue into sylvia robinson and sugar hill record oh huh? huge huh? sylvia fan man huge she was on my tape of like music to play when the in-laws come over to make everybody uncomfortable her song pillow talk oh man that whole record fantastic you know yes. i mean she yes. as far as i'm concerned gold medal for making the best fuck noises on, or or for making fuck noises in art form you know yeah and pre-donna I mean, summer the, that's what i'm saying that yeah. donna summer wrote it to greater fame and, and you know and and then ruined her legacy by saying oh i was laughing all the way through that in the studio you know i didn't need to know that just let, let the yeah. fantasy live. But Sylvia was a hundred. She was all in, you know. But and, and of course, that, Mick, Mick, Mickey, Mickey and Sylvia. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, the strange. Yeah. yeah. Mickey Baker, the great, great session guitarist, you know, that's yeah. on all the coasters records and all the, you know, 50s uh, R&B drifters records and all that stuff. Coasters like, whose son, whose son uh, is in that Bad Brains, uh, 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 on the Bad Brains DVD with me. Uh, CBG's ah. 1982. Mm-hmm. Pete, Pete Guy was the son of uh, uh, the singer for the co- Coasters. Fun fact. Fun fact. But so they, they introduced Sylvia Robinson and, and they go into her history as a successful R&B artist in the 50s. Again, in the 70s, she and her husband, Joe Robinson, had all platinum records, which put out Pillow Talk and made a bunch of bank and then blew it all. They were all mixed up with, with roulette records and all those shady guys. And so they were broke and looking for something, and she stumbles across Lovebug Starsky, DJ at a club, and she's like, I want to put this on a record. This is going to sell. This is what's going to save my business and save my career. He turns her down, and she sends her kids out looking in Jersey for rappers, and they come across Big Bank Hank at a pizza place where he's making pizza, and he's rapping. Supposedly, according to legend, he was listening to a Cold Crush Brothers tape, in the pizza shop as he's rapping. So, you know, and, and called swipes the lyrics. They put, she puts together master G wonder Mike and big bank. Hank forms the sugar Hill gang, takes him in the studio, gets a band to record basically Sheik's, uh, what's now I'm blank on the song. Good time. Oh, um, the freak. The, the freak. Yeah. Oh, oh, um, oh no. Good time. Sorry. He's yeah. Like, good times. Aha! Yeah. Good time. Good times by Sheik. Um, which is a weird choice. And, and it takes rap, the first rap record is really more of a disco rap record. I mean, it, it, you could have DJ Hollywood 
basically with the band backing him and make that record. I mean, yeah. it, it had nothing to do with him. There's no breaks in it. There's no scratching, nothing, none of that. But you've got rap, and then and then Big Bang Hank swipes Grandmaster Kaz's shit. So Alexi, so you had some uh, quibbles. So going. Grandmaster Kaz was managed by Big Bang Hank. Right. So it's actually deeper and more fucked up. It's a situation where Big Bank Hank actually was from the Bronx doing the pizza stuff on the side and was able to open up. You know, the owner asked him to open up, you know, to help manage something in Inglewood. And he actually um, so there are different kind of stories There's some stories. The fact that the Sugar Hill Kang actually did perform as a crew in the Bronx. Right. The other story, which is more consistent, is there was a relationship between Big Bank Hank and Grandmaster Kaz. There's a question as to whether or not uh, Grandmaster Kaz's book of rhymes was borrowed by uh, Big Bank Hank, right? But at the end of the day, the, 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 the butthurtness comes in because, rightfully so, Big Bank Hank was part of the Bronx scene. And in, just like a lot of things in life, which I found find fascinating – you know, it goes to a kind of like bougie or right place, right time, who you know. So Big Bank Hank is in Englewood, New Jersey, which is not a, a down and out place, right? Like, yep. so he's, yep. in, he's in a bougie kind of middle class place making pizzas. He has the connection to the grimy and the city, right? He's managing Grandmaster Kaz. And the reason why Grandmaster Kaz was pissed was because his whole thing was like that's why i made it worse in documentaries like he should have introduced me just think about this is your manager so the thing i find interesting yeah. number one is it continues this theme you see in music right in terms of managers like ripping off their clients the the funny thing about the manager becoming an artist right and that's yeah. why i think big Bang exactly that's why i think so funny is when you see big bang hanging all the photos he's like hey, hey! He's having more fun than anybody else because he's ripping off. You're like, hey, he shouldn't have been there, but he was there. Yeah. Well, there, there are ways. I mean, there are ways to handle that, and there are ways to not handle that. And I think if if Hank had gone to Kaz and said, "Hey, listen, man, chick rolls up in a limo. Turns out it's Sylvia. We're gonna do this thing. I want to use your shit." And how about I pay you as a ghostwriter for the stuff I use? I mean, no, but they had no idea it was going to be as huge as right. it was. But once it once it was, you know, it would have been a clear cut road for me to say, hey, bro, wait, you know, I was just goofing off in the studio. I didn't realize that, that was, that's what they were going to use. But I want to make this right. What do you say we split 50 50, you know? Um, and he may not have gone for that. But as far as I'm concerned, the real culprit here is Starsky. What the fuck was that about? Nah, nah, thanks. Nah, nah, nah. I'm, I'm cool. I'm cool. That, that, the, the Pete Best, the Pete Best of hip hop. Make a record. Fuck that. I'm not making a record. Who's going to buy that shit? Well, that's where they, they tie this thing back into jazz, you know, because you got Buddy Bolden, the first jazz player who well, was committed in a insane asylum before getting a chance to make records. You know, black artists basically didn't get to make records until the early 20s. And he, uh, you know, was committed like 1917 or whatever. And so people are arguing that, you know, some of these early hip hop artists didn't believe this should be recorded, that it's just for the party and just in the moment. And yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's true. But and maybe that was Starsky's rationale. I'll rap on but... other people's records. I don't yes. rap on my own. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it rap? Well, he rap if I'm rapping over my own records. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he's kind of got he's, he's kind of got that now, right? I mean, 
you know, are people are, are, are people buying hip hop records? Are they stealing them or are they traded or is it free? Well, they're paying s- streaming subscriptions these days. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you, and you know how much money I've gotten from Spotify? <laughs> <laughs> Billy oh. Eilish, I'm sure gets, gets, gets. Yeah. A, Billy. Okay. Much more. Okay. You know, yeah, so. sure. yeah, yeah. The, the estate of Lil Peep, I'm sure is, <laughs> is, is, is banking uh, quite a bit. And so then from there, then they, you know, they talk about, Rapper's Delight and how big it gets. So do you guys remember the first time you heard Rapper's Delight? Because we talked about yeah. this last time. I was oblivious to it. I missed it completely. Yeah. Wow. yeah so tell us. I'd already, heard, I'd already heard hip hop. And uh, at that point, and I remember being in a club dancing and it came on and I was like, ah, I hit the dance floor because I'd already, uh, my friend uh, who recorded the song Dollar Bill, uh, what, that was the name I originally knew him under. He had changed it to Jimmy Spicer and then made the song Dollar Dollar Bill, y'all. He already introduced me. I already heard it from then and he had given me. But, uh, when I heard that in a, in a disco, and, and he's right in this regard because it's the first place I heard it uh, that wasn't on a radio. I don't believe I heard it in the radio the first time I heard it. I recognized it, what it was, and I think I might even said to whoever I was there with or later when I was recounting it to somebody, I was like, it's that shit that Dollar Bill does, <laughs> you know? It was, uh, that, and I think I just called that rhyming stuff or, or I, I, I think he had, he called it rapping at that point. So I think I would have he said he was rapping or it was rhyming, that rhyming stuff, it was great. And it was a real, it was a club hit because of good times, you know? I mean, we had been dancing that whole summer, whatever, to, to good times. So, you know, it was, it, it, it really, I mean, I don't, I, I think they should give them more credit because there are lots of other things that they could have made records of at the time that wouldn't have had the same impact. Mm. And the fact that they traded on what had already been a club hit that allowed DJs who were always losing for that extra something at New York, New York, or Xenon, or Studio 54 to play what essentially was some street shit or a street as they were comfortable in being or getting was pretty was pretty fucking slick because all of a sudden people were exposed to it and buying it who ordinarily wouldn't have touched it. And some of these people filtered back to record labels. And, uh, you know, I'm guessing that's where we're going to go for, well, that's, that's where we get to at the end of this, this section. Right. So, yeah. And, and they don't even mention the whole ripping off chic part. Like nobody paid any royalties for good times. I don't know why Sheik never sued about that. Cause you know, it, it well, seems the best like- the, the best thing about that is that you know um, uh, you know uh, where uh, the, the song came from, right? The uh, guy from Queen was jamming with the guys from Chic and came up with the baseline, and that's why another one bites the dust has the same baseline. But right, was, but no, the, no, it. but the uh, the other one, um, uh, the their first big hit, uh, he. Niles had tried to get into Studio Fifty Four oh, yeah, yeah. that night. The freak and yeah. was re- yeah yeah the freak and was rejected, and it was like they wouldn't let him in. They're like fuck it, you can't come in. And, and the person who didn't let him in, who ties into the end of this episode, was famous doorman Howie Montag, who uh, who also was a doorman at Mud Club with me and and, and Debbie Mazer. Uh, cause they would just, they wouldn't hire real security. I'm sure Debbie was getting paid, but when we would roll in there, like the hardcore crew, they would just say, you guys look tough, stand here and I'll let you in for free. So we stand <laughs> ah. there for like an hour, 
hour. And then he if there's any trouble, you help me out. And then we sent her an hour and they go, okay, you can go in now. And we didn't have to pay to get in. It was like, I didn't realize until now how sleazy that was. But, um, but uh, yeah, I think it was really smart what they did. And again, like half a dozen other people couldn't have done it, wouldn't have done it, and of course did not do it. And so I, I don't want to. Isn't it for the chorus too? Then uh, Nile Rodgers said that really it was ah uh, fuck you because they would let him in. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. yeah, yeah that, that's what it was. So yeah, but yeah. it was it was. It, yeah, I mean, they took a hit and made it a hit. You know. So yeah, they should have paid Nile too, but whatever. Yeah. So Alexi, where did you first hear rappers? Uh, I it had to be. Um, I can't remember the time and place, but it probably was on somebody's boombox playing it. And then, you know, you hear parts of it and then parts in different places. I just remember as, you know, when I first, my biggest memory of it, though, was one of the first times, uh, a couple of times I heard it and I had my father listen to it as Jamaican. like, just toasting uh, Americans. Like, you know, he's like, oh, listen to this. He's doing songs like, you're doing Jamaica when I was there, you know. He uh, left for Jamaica. Uh, he left Jamaica when he was 19. He's like, oh, they used to do it back in Jamaica when I was there, man. Jamaica. Uh, <laughs> so, what were you in, like, third grade when it came out? Uh, well, when, what was the year it came out? 79. 79. No, I was in, um, wait, six, seven. First, first grade. First grade. Oh, oh shut oh. up. Shut up. <laughs> He's a younger. Only a younger around you old motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's right. How old, Make me feel how old young. <laughs> I was in fifth grade. Oh, okay. And blissfully. <laughs> blissfully. Yeah, all right. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that's no, great. No. Yeah, right. wonderful. Yeah. So we'll, we'll pause here and come back and finish up the episode next time. Here's the Sugar Hill Gang's version of Apache. Jump on it. My new Seville. My tribe went down in the Hall of Fame. Cause I'm the one who shot Jesse James. Pound for pound, I will never break down. And now, a word from our sponsors. And here's Planet Rock from Africa Bambata and Soul Sonic Force. Dreams about the seats. Make your body sway. Socialize. Get down. Let your soul lead the way. Shake it now. Go, ladies. It's a living dream. Love life live. Come play the game. Welcome back to Let It Roll. We're continuing our discussion of the second episode of the first season of Hip Hop Evolution, The Underground and the Mainstream. In the previous segment, we talked about uh, the panoply of groups that moved into the vacuum left by the absence of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Don't make fun of my big vocabulary, Eugene. It was, a, it was not the vocabulary, Beneath. my friend. It was a pronunciation, but go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I went to state college, and whenever someone mispronounces a word, Eugene, it means they're an autodidact, and they read it. Okay, all they right. They read okay. it. They didn't hear okay. it. So anyway, yeah. so we talked about the first hip-hop record, Rapper's Light. Now we're going to continue talking about hip-hop's move downtown into Manhattan and two key early records. 
Africa Bambata and the Soul Sonic Forces, Planet Rock, and The Message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. So when we left off, Rapper's Delight had brought our genre into the public eye as the first hip-hop record, but it also turned hip-hop into a bit of a joke or a fad, as Jazzy J said, and left it at a dead end. I mean, you've got Rodney Dangerfield rapping and, you know, no every... No I love that shit back there. <laughs> it's classic, you know. But I hadn't I hadn't realized that it left hip hop in this cul-de-sac. And I, I don't think anybody who heard Rappers Alight at the time who wasn't from New York, who didn't know that there was this whole scene underground and this was just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, why wouldn't you think it was a novelty record? It's a disco record with talking over it, you know? So perfectly logical conclusion. But as I pointed out in Hip Hop Evolution, Jazzy J says, it looked like it was getting ready to be one of those fads. Hip hop came on the scene, everybody loved it, and it's ready to die. And what saved the culture of hip hop in its purest form was when Africa Bambata said, let's take it from the Bronx down to Manhattan. But then they give kind of a conflicting story because they bring in Fab Five Freddy, who was involved in the art aspect, the, the graffiti aspect of hip hop, one of the four pillars of hip hop culture, along with breakdancing, DJing and MCing, plus the fifth knowledge. He knew Keith Herring and he was downtown showing off, you know, the subway paintings and the different graffiti art downtown and getting an open audience. And he was telling his friends about the scene back home in the Bronx. And Keith Herring suggests, suggests booking Bambada to play downtown. And the rest is history. So, Eugene, I know this is a particularly close subject to you at heart. Were you in New York at this point? Yes. Yeah, for sure. For Very, and, and downtown. I, ha I hadn't left it. I left in uh, late September 1980. Um, so, and then even then I went back on tour with Whipping Boy. So that's when I was doing security at, at the Mud Club. Well, security. It was a way for them to scam us, <laughs> scam us yes. into, into free work. Uh, you know, but of course we got in for free. So, uh, we didn't have to pay, but so we, did you, you know. see any of these shows, Africa Bambata and others? No, because I, I tell you, at that point, um, I, I I was because of Dollar Bill, or, who later changed his name to Jimmy Spicer. I, I was aware of it, um, but I'd gone. I was a disco kid who had got you know, uh, disco and punk rock were happening for me simultaneously, and then I got off into the weirder side of like. I saw Klaus Nomi at the at the Mud Club, and I was into No Wave and just the harder, more distorted edge. And I just it seemed to me that I didn't get excited about hip hop again until probably a guy from New York ended up at Stanford in 1982, and he said he'll listen to this. And it was I want to say Eric B and Rakim. In um, 82? No, no. no. Who, who was it? Cool Modi, something like that. No, Houdini. Uh, he's a, he's a lawyer. He's a Jersey lawyer, man. He actually teaches at Rutgers. His, Rutgers. His name is David Dante Trout. He gave me a tape. I could. I, I'll email him and ask him. I can't remember what was on it, but it wasn't Houdini. But it was somebody like. Uh, and I say Eric B and Rakim because they were like it was it was serious. That's what I, that's what I that's what I it wasn't you know in the party and the been in the party and the da da da. da um, so it wasn't the bridge, it wasn't KRS One, it no, wasn't no, 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 no. Schoolie. That was, 
That was later. Scooby yeah, School PS- PSK, that was later. Um, I, it, it'll come to me probably before the end of the show. Um, but so, you know, I knew that Africa Barbada was playing and I just dismissed it as rehashed. I, kind of, I said, if I wanted that, I would pay attention to, like, I, I would go see Sun Ra, Rasan, mm. Rasan Roland Kirk, you know, just the guys I thought he was ripping off to, you know, to lesser effect. I, I didn't appreciate it at the time. Damn. Missed missed opportunity because I, I don't know. I love this part of this the episode. And and it talks about, you know, how Bambata yep. comes down downtown and uses it as an excuse to expand his palette. You know, and, and Grandmaster Flash had the same experience when he came downtown around the same time, is that there were records he could not play in the Bronx. Yep. But he could get away with playing downtown and as Grandmaster Flash in my scientific method that I could mix this stuff in. But Bambata's the but, one. But but you but you know, I, I heard that. And of course, my my it, it it wasn't foreign to my my ear. I heard it, and I was like, "Oh yeah, cool, craft work." Right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I didn't think that they would. What I liked about Planet Rock were, were the breaks on it when the kids would start doing the Puerto Rican well, kids would start doing. Yep, there you go. Well, okay. As we get to Planet Rock, but let's yeah. keep talking about this downtown mix because we got to get to Rapture before we get yep. to Planet Rock. So. Yep. One of the people, you know, and, and one thing I liked about this episode, I found it oddly touching, um, was the mutual respect or the admiration that the, you know, hip hop artists like Grandmaster Kaz or Russell Simmons, who's, you know, a biz figure who's not a factor at this point in the story, but obviously becomes a big, big player in the hip hop business. But the respect that they had for the punkers for picking out hip hop and bringing yeah. hip hop downtown and being open-minded and, and, you know, Russell Simmons has a pretty historical view of it, that this is something that frequently happens that you have the, the alternative white people who embrace the new black art form and, they, and it's not their own, but they, they embrace it and help bring it in the mainstream. And definitely the story about Debbie Harry meeting Grandmaster Flash and then being inspired to write a song, which becomes Rapture. Now Rapture, I did well, hear. Time. But but you also have to be mindful of what you know what the, these white artists were rebelling against at the time. There was this bifurcation. There was that whole disco sucks was a fucking serious thing, man. They would oh, yeah. like, Yankee Stadium events and stadiums of people who could not dance and therefore did not like disco would shoot, buy disco records to show. I mean, this is like 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 you know book burnings in berlin in the, in the 30s you know real serious passion you know i couldn't read t- anyway yeah t- t-shirts yeah. <laughs> t-shirt t-shirt lines that said disco sucks i mean it was it was a big deal so naturally like these folks in the lower east side were like fuck that fuck that and these were probably some of the first people to to my knowledge and from what i remember really embrace reggae as well so you know but as um, they point out in the show, and I think it was Grandmaster Cass who was saying, you know, we identify with punk because it was the alternative rock, just the way hip hop was yep. alternative to disco. But you're yep. right, like the whole disco sucks thing. I mean, they were bringing down Marvin Gaye records to burn. It, it yeah. really had yeah, more yeah. to do with racism and homophobia than it did. I think it was it was a twofold thing because the thing is, by the early '80s, disco did suck. I mean, you had Kiss making yep. disco records, you had yeah. the Stones making disco records. You know, I you like had just suck. Yeah, well, some you know, some girls is not a bad record. I don't what are you talking about. Not, yeah, but Emotional Rescue crazy. gets pretty old. You know, yeah, six yeah, tracks yeah. into Emotional Rescue, and you're like, all right, Mick, you know, we yeah, get been to Studio 54. Like, and Rod Stewart, you know. You yeah, I'm and that's not even the worst stuff. I mean, there were yeah, mountains, yeah. mountains of drivel. Brandon no, it's one of my childhood. 
Kenny Rogers. No, and and realistically speaking, I would say the decline of disco closely matched when people finally figured out that cocaine was harmful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. seriously, you What'd can't you just say? under cocaine was <laughs> Alexis. What <laughs> this is news? Cocaine is harmful since when? Yeah, yeah. no, no. So that uh, I maybe mean, I'll cocaine. I don't think you can underestimate underestimate, and that was also also a bonding influence, right? I mean, the the narcotics at the same time as well. You cannot, you know, nobody's talking about that in any serious way because nobody wants to cop to it. But that that was the deal, right? Yeah, and so, but anyway, you you have this shared affinity between these two subcultures: the hip hop kids from the Bronx and the uh, punk rock new wavers in Manhattan and the Lower East Side. Did we lose Eugene? We did. Oh, well. He left. Oh, sorry, sorry. That's all right. That, fu- that fucking idiot Sorrell called me right in the middle of yeah. the show. So. <laughs> all right, the cameras picked back up. There we go. Yep. Yeah. Perfect. Seamless. So, 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 you, uh, the narcotics were a serious part, but also too, you know, there was a multi-pronged thing on both sides of it because you had Basquiat, who his first, the first way he came to note for people at all was through his graffiti. It was very different type of graffiti, you know, and, and off of that Keith Herring, which is also very different type of graffiti. So I, I think that there was cross pollination way before, you know, way before people actually started to do it w- with music. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Fab Fred Freddy like was down there a couple of years before, um, Bambata and flash came to downtown. But one thing I didn't, we didn't fully elaborate on was that Bambata was notorious for his very Catholic record collection. He's mixing the monkeys and Elvis yeah. and all this yeah. kind of stuff in there with the James Brown, plus the craft work and, and the talking heads and the Tom, Tom club and stuff like that. So, or Tom, Tom club probably wasn't around yet, yeah. but yeah, yeah. But, you know, B 52s, that kind of stuff. And then you get Debbie Harry coming in and like grandmaster flash says, she was a superstar at this point in time. I mean, yeah. American gigolo had come out and, and, you know, Blondie had, done what the Ramones could not do and crossed over and, and become yep. huge stars. She, she was huge. Yeah. And, and it was, so she, she than, even though uh, it was a Didi, That's why. Yeah. <laughs> Although maybe not better in bed, according to virtually everybody in New York at the time, but no, Men and, oh, 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 oh. What? what did you say? I missed it. Say it again. <laughs> I said Debbie Harry might have been cuter than Didi Ramone, but probably not better in bed, at least according to Linda Stein and many others in the scene at the time. Um, anyhow, Hey, who let's go? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't heard. So, okay. Yeah. So, so Debbie Harry is enormously huge, and she decides to do a hip hop record or a rap record. And Rapture, I mean, even at the time, like, I, I remember hearing that record. I loved Blondie at the time. I liked the first part of the song, but the girl could not rap to say for life. Like, no, I hadn't heard uh, hip hop. I hadn't even heard Rodney or Rapper's Delight at this point, but I could tell whatever she was trying to do, she was not doing it particularly well. And yet, massive, massive number one hit record. And well, but you know, you gotta, she had just had so much cachet at the time. I mean, oh, you yeah. know, just everybody loved Debbie, you know, it was just couldn't. She was, uh, yeah, she's just so cute and likable. And yeah. it's, weirdly enough, over the course of time, it hasn't left. I mean, people still genuinely think of Deborah Harry, like, yeah, yeah, yeah you feel good, you know? Yeah, they put out yeah. a good body of work, and she was yeah. a charismatic star, and she's always yeah. beautiful on film, and, and, you know, the pictures are still there, so you can see that. And they, mm. you know, Bl- Blondie had multiple 
three, four good albums in a row. I mean, really solid stuff plus massive hit singles. Well, but also she was the first one to really sell it because if you don't, if you remember the Bond, the famous Bond show, I had a friend who wrote a piece about it because he was a bouncer there that night where the Clash tried to, you know, tried to like integrate it, and that's a bit of a long history of that from the. What did Otis Redding opening for the Stones, right? And they were all worried that is this was the case they were worried, oh, this our audience is going to eat up Otis Redding and Otis nah, Redding, is, Redding never opened up for the Stones, I don't think. But Stevie Wonder got booed off stage up Prince. No, 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 they no, 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 yeah, they did, but no, you gotta. You, but that you, was uh, later on. That was the seventies, eighties. Oh, no, no, I'm talking about. I'm talking I about can Tina Turner opened up for the Stones. BB King. No, opened, it was uh, Otis Redding. Now, Otis Redding never opened up for the Stones. Oh, okay. a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, yeah, find, was, me, was, find me that, but hold, hold, no. Otis, Otis Redding. Oh, no, no. Not, who's the guy who sang uh, the, 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 uh, Dock of the Bay? Who's that? That's Otis That's Redding. Otis Redding. And he did not oh, yeah. open up for the Stones. You're wrong. You're wrong. Uh, I'll find it. He'll be Googling no, yeah. the Dock yeah. of the right. Bay. Bragging rights. Bragging rights. Since under since under the lockdown, nobody has any money, so this will be for bragging rights. But I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Check check that out. Check that out. But anyhow, Debbie Harry as Grandmaster Flash said, opened up a huge door for hip hop with with Rapture, and in part brought Grandmaster Flash and others to the attention of record companies. Grandmaster Flash, of course, was on Sugar Hill, but Africa Bambata was not, and he gets together with a guy who forms Tommy Boy Records and they put out Planet Rock, which is um, Tom Silverman who put out Tommy Boy. He sees Africa Bambata downtown at the Mud Club and signs him up and they put together Planet Rock, which is a combination of two Kraftwerk records and uh, Super Swarm by Captain Rock, which is a oh, gr- obscure, great Great record. song, great yeah. song. And it's also the first record that had the 808 drum machine on it. So a, a gazillion records follow that sound. So Planet Rock is this enormously important record, and they do a pretty good job on the show defining that what made it special was it was the first hip-hop record with a left-field sample. Like, at this point, there's barely hip-hop records. You know, there's the Sugar Hill Gang, basically with a live band playing chic uh, rip-offs underneath the raps. And here comes Africa Bambata, and he's – doing a variation on craft work, which was totally left field. And as they say, you know, it's, it's established this tradition that hip hop records should feature samples out of left field and that any sound can be brought into hip hop and that it, it, it's immediately but then, established. But then also, again, don't underestimate the, that th- these were, um, it changed what was happening on the dance floor as well. That's when people start popping and locking because of the robotic feel of the craft work, you know, it was um it was it, it was a it was there was a, like a kind of a perfect meeting there of you know what was coming from the speakers versus what was happening on the dance floor and they mentioned it in passing but I can't I can't underestimate what a crowd I, I can't uh, overestimate is that what I'm under you know what I yeah, mean you can't overstate <laughs> I can't overstate thank you uh the, the uh what a crowd killer fucking uh Apache was um. Sure. In, in terms of the kids from the Bronx, and they would start break dancing, and that was one. That was one of the like the, the little. I never tried. Never tried. Fuck it. Wait, you say crowd killers? What, what? Like people would stop it? What? What do you mean? Oh, I just go. They, they would hear the, the strains of Apache and the dance. Ah, people would rush out to the dance. No, totally. Floor. To this day, yeah, I played. To this yeah, day, yeah, I yeah. played those. I played Apache. I played Rappers Delight. I played. Uh, 
of Planet Rock and the message for my kids this past weekend. And of the four songs, the ones that still resonate to the, to this day, yeah. Patchy, because they yeah. hear it. They're like, oh, I heard this song. I heard this song. They still play ding, Patchy. Ding, right? ding, Apache ding, and ding. the message. Yeah. Planet yeah. Rock, they're like, this guy can't rap. Like, yeah, his yeah, rapping's yeah, terrible. Yeah. And then yeah. Yeah, rappers yeah. like they thought was corny. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely see that. But Planet Rock, you cannot underestimate how influential it was, not only on the electro-funk style that dominates hip-hop for like the next three, four years, but also the whole genre of techno and electronic mm-hmm. dance music. I mean, that the whole scene in Detroit and Chicago was heavily influenced by yeah. Bambada and his Catholic tastes and bringing Kraftwerk and the B-52s and all that stuff. All those bougie kids in Detroit that invent techno, their way into following Bambada's lead. And the next record they talk about is The Message that you just brought up. And this is Grandmaster Flash and The Furious Five. Although the thing about these early Grandmaster Flash records is Flash isn't really on them, except for Grandmaster Flash and The Wheels of Steel. That's the one record where he gets to cut and do do his bit like it was live. But The Message is not just a disco band playing underneath Melly Mel, but it's not full-on Flash scratching and cutting. But it's Melly Mel. What year is The Message? 82. 82. That's a, that was the, that was on the tape. That was okay. the tape that the guy There gave. you go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cuz it was so, I remember it was serious and that so yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and like all the hip hop records up to this point have been party records. and the message is suddenly a message and it and it's and it's great rhyming. I mean there's great quotes in there like, you know, um uh, let's see. Kumo D calls. I've heard a thousand rhymes. I've still never heard a better rhyme than a child is born with no state of mind. Yeah. It's everything an MC could inspire to be in one rhyme. I mean, you know, a great concept that shifted the paradigm for what hip hop records could be, for what hip hop records could be, and what kind of things could be talked about. You know, and it's absolutely a stunning achievement. And you know, I don't know. Flash and Melly Mel break up and, and you get Melly Mel and the Furious Five competing with Grandmaster Flash and a different Furious Five. And and yep. they're, they they never made the great album to follow up with the message. But, you know, there's at least a solid couple albums worth of Grandmaster Flash out there if you put together the various singles and, and B-sides and stuff. But I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you shouldn't be disappointed that they didn't do more because it did accomplish a hell of a lot. And I also, well, another thing I find interesting about this was that both Bambada and Grandmaster Flash make these pivotal landmark records, but DJ Cool Herc never, you yeah. know, and Grandmaster Kaz and those guys never, never really cut a definitive record either. So a little bit of mixed feelings. Well, it, it, it's, you know, and again, the degree to which they, had later success, I think is a degree to which they actually made that trip downtown because there was a lot of weird ass music being made by black folks downtown that people were suddenly, you know, the, the decoding society and, you know, Melvin Gibbs and all those cats. And, you know, I, I mean, there was a lot of like, just really cool. I don't even know, no wave, new wave music, you know, a lot of, uh, on the Lower East Side, and what was the Georgia. the band with the chicks in it that was on the No New on the New Wave, the Brian Eno No Wave compilation? It's like EMG or what was the Oh ESG ESG Yeah Emerald yeah. Emerald Sapphire and Gold <laughs> Yeah 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 They were, yeah, yeah, they they were, were totally genius yeah. Yeah. oddball stuff But yeah, yeah 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 No They were great They were great So Yeah It was It was I mean You could still uh, Who was uh, Who was uh, One of the first female rappers Um 
not Roxanne. Nah, not Roxanne Chate. That was a little bit later. But there was a one who had the longest early career. What the hell was her name? Um, she had a had, was playing downtown well after she couldn't draw a crowd uptown. So, so was it just a refuge? I mean, why did they leave the Bronx behind at that point? Um, well, because you could get shot there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, the it's toughest nice thing in the lower, the toughest thing in the lower east side were Puerto Ricans, and they were mostly in the drug business, so they left you alone unless you were just like a lone white cat, you know. But if you're African American, you have a hard time in the lower east side of Tompkins Square Park or St. Mark's Place. It was, uh, you know, it'd be a different story if you got out to Bay Ridge or Bensonhurst or something oh. like that. But here, yeah, yeah, no, but other uh, lower east side, no, nah, I never had any problems there. Even when I would go over into projects, it, you know, into Letter Avenues or. No, no. I, I mean, I got one thing and it, had, and I was out of line. So, I, I, you know, I mean, I was beating some guy up and they're like, if you keep beating him up, the cops are going to come stop. So, uh, okay. <laughs> just one more kick. Yeah, 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 exactly. Just a little, uh. Well, that's when so, the guy like t- t- takes his gun and he taps it on the, on the window. So like, clink, clink. And I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's enough. So, so. Alexi, any quibbles with the accuracy of this episode or this part of the I episode? Had no, I, I had no quibbles. The, the, my butthurtness over Rapture was just – I was one of those kids who would you know, read the Rolling Stones, uh, Rolling Stones Almanac and all this kind of shit and all the bullshit that they would write about. Like, oh, the Rapture, the first rap record. And she invented a rap. Well, it was fucking bull – fucking hate. One of the one of my joys of the of music journalism going down the toilet, no one giving a fuck anymore, is a lot of these <laughs> pompous pieces of shit that don't know their history outside of white artists making up shit. You know, it's the same motherfuckers talking about Jerry oh, Lee Lewis and all this kind of Pat shit. Boone. So, Pat oh, Boone. Oh, yeah, exactly. Tootie Fruity already. <laughs> Let's not compare Pat Boone and Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, come on. <laughs> no, he mentioned Jerry Lee Lewis. I just came in with the Pat Boone. Oh, but yeah, 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 just yeah. That. So that's so. I thought for this, for this that segment, uh, I didn't have any quibbles. Also, because when they're talking about just the greatness of the message, the thing it's just it's such a classic song. Doesn't get tired, and the fact that uh, that Mel Mel's second verse—I mean, what second or third verse? Like his last verse. Normally, you know, the last verse of a rap song or whatever, they're kind of like wrapping it up. But you know, a child is born in those state of mind, and 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 the and the, the guy gets raped in jail, and like you know, and his body was cold as warm back and forth. It's just so fucking. It's so hardcore. It's yeah. just so hardcore, and just presenting just like a slice of life and a morality fa- tale, and just the, the lyrical delivery. It, it, it's just it's one of these things. That just gives you chills like every time you listen to it, and just uh, you know, the fact they were just basking in the gloriousness of that song for me. Let yeah. me overcome the Canadianness of it. <laughs> and the other part, the second part of the episode that got me a little verklempt was the end when, because they've done a good job in this episode of painting how rough times were in the Bronx. And they've already yeah. pointed out, you know, they, they've got uh, Eugene, your pal, Kevin Powell's quote in there, like, <laughs> you know, what Reaganomics meant for poor people was, you know, getting a boot in your face, getting your ass kicked. And and they, they set that up. They have footage of Reagan touring the Bronx and and people yelling at him and everything. And, and they wrap it up with the tease for, you know, it's a good thing hip hop got on its feet with these two great records and the move downtown because – Hip hop had found its voice just in time because the 80s were being Reaganomics, AIDS, crack yeah. epidemic, the war on drugs, all this stuff. And and 
it points toward the coming golden age of hip hop. And that, that made me remember Clint thinking about mm. the way these artists helped their people fight just a really fucked up set of circumstances in the eighties. You know, it was not all Bill Cosby for African America, uh, in the eighties, you know? No, uh, no, it, it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, but I, yeah, the, the, even, you know, the buildings burning down, it wasn't as damaging in total as what happened when crack came in. Uh, and yeah. I suggest you read Gary Webb's book, uh, Dark Alliance about yeah, the late C- great Gary Webb, late great great, how the CIA aided and abetted that. That was destructive in ways that people haven't even fully measured, you know. Yeah, and Grandmaster Kaz talked about that a little bit. How you know, coincidentally, helicopters full of crack are just flying over the ghetto, sprinkling the shit all over, you know, the yeah. neighborhood. And, and yeah. you know, without getting into the whole quote unquote conspiracy theory, but you know, Gary Webb, well, as Gary Webb reports it, it's not a theory. It's a fact. No, right? Yeah. He, and yeah, it's yeah, been yeah, vindicated yeah. by history. Yeah. You know, yeah. Max Waters and other people have, have backed him up. Nonetheless, Gary Webb was driven out of journalism and how to yeah. do his death. So, you know, uh, anyway, but that's our, that's our <laughs> what a positive note. <laughs> but hip hop is going to be ready, and ne- next time we'll get to talk about Run DMC and and the whole golden age. So, looking forward to the third episode of Hip Hop Evolution and our discussion on Let It Roll here with my guests Eugene S. Robinson and Alexi Ole. Thanks, fellas. Nate, Alexi, and Eugene will be back next week with a discussion of Episode 3 of Hip Hop Evolution, The New Guard, which covers the rise of a new generation led by Run DMC, Def Jam, Eric B. and Rakim, and Public Enemy. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a three-in-one formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a streak-free shine. And its advanced beating technology keeps you seeing safely all year long. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Pick some up at Walmart today. It's not easy being the one everyone counts on to keep your operation running, no matter the weather or supply chain hiccup. But we get you, Raymond and Buffalo. Maria in Miami, and Jules and Troy. Taking control of everything that's under your control. At Granger, we're here for you with high-quality supplies for every industry, plus real-time product availability and access to experts ready to help. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 